Welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean, and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Sometimes it can get messy, but so can love. Today I want to invite you to turn with me please to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter seven, and we will begin in verse 36. Luke chapter seven. Verse 36, and as you find your way to that passage, let me catch you up with where we've been. So during this series, we've been recognizing that all of these moments keep emerging in the life of Jesus, these these incredible moments where Jesus is teaching, healing, inspiring, correcting, challenging, reproving, transforming people. And so many times, more often than not, they curiously take place around tables. And we know what the gospel writers are up to by making these moments of transformation happen over meals and over tables because we recognize that they know that they are reaching back into an ancient hope that was believed that at the end of this age there is coming a day when God will spread a great banqueting table for all humankind, all who have been broken to be mended, all who are hungry to be fed, and from every realm of every nation in the world there is coming a day of reconciliation and hope and restoration. So Jesus calls us to order our lives today in such a way that kind of hurries that day forward. To order our life in such a way now that we actually believe there is coming a day and is breaking in now when all really are welcomed around God's table. That's why during the series what I've been saying and will keep on saying each week is the degree to which you make space at the table of your heart for others is the degree to which the kingdom that's coming will break forth in your heart and in your life even today. But what we've been saying along the way is, yeah, it can sometimes get messy and crowded around that kind of table. Like the story that we're about to read This story is told in all four of the gospels in the New Testament. Jesus and his disciples are welcomed to a a prominent person's home for dinner. And while they're having dinner and presumably some life-changing conversations, they are interrupted. There is an intrusion by an unexpected and uninvited guest. And it causes anxiety in the room 
Now, even though each of the Gospels tells the story in a specific, unique kind of way, in every one of the versions of the story, she comes in and she weeps at his feet. She washes his feet with her tears and dries them with her hair and she takes a bottle of very costly ointment or perfume and pours it out on his feet or in some places his head and in every one of the stories, the anxiety level in the room elevates and everybody, in each of the stories, somebody's protesting. In one place, it's Judas, because that cost a lot of money and we could have used that money to give to the poor. In another place, it's the disciples. In one place, it's actually the host of the dinner who, who pro- protests what she's doing. And in each of those cases, everyone in the room has to reckon with the crowded table This morning, I wonder if I can speak to you for just a moment on the intrusion of inclusion. The intrusion of inclusion. We begin reading in verse 36 of chapter seven. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him and when he went into the Pharisee's house, he reclined at the table to dine. Can we just stop there? I've told you already now for two weeks that when you come across the word recline in the New Testament, it not only describes the kind of cultural method by which people ate around the tables in a relaxed setting, but it's also a euphemism that's meant to trigger something in us. It's meant to trigger an awareness that where you see Jesus reclining, it is an environment of radical comfort and welcome. When you recline at the table, there is a sense of safety and an environment in which you can be vulnerable. You can let down your guard, if only for a little while, and there he is in the home of the Pharisee, reclining at his table. Now, here's what's curious to me. It's not curious to me why Jesus would be found reclining, creating a space of grace wherever he was. It's not not surprising because we all the time talk about Jesus reclining with the least likely, like tax collectors and, and sinners and prostitutes and thieves. What's surprising to me is we come across a story with him reclining, making a space of grace with a Pharisee. It's the first place in scripture where we see a Pharisee invite him. Pharisees were the the antagonists to Jesus. Everywhere you look in the gospels, the Pharisees were they who represented the right belief, a kind of rigid religiosity where orthodoxy and right belief and right practice meant everything and obedience to the law was everything and every time they saw Jesus, at Jesus' best, he's bending the law and in some places in their interpretation, breaking the law. And here Jesus is comfortable enough to recline in the home of a Pharisee. Now that strikes me as odd, you know? Because even those of us who think ourselves to be pretty welcoming, pretty inclusive, we all have our limits, right? I mean, let me give you an example, right? So I consider myself something of a centrist on most things, theological, 
political, ideological. I'm, I'm a true moderate, I'm centrist, which means I have friends on my right who think I'm way too progressive for them, way too liberal for them. And I have people on my left who think I'm way too conservative for them, way too old-fashioned thinking for them. And I kind of dig it that way. Because here's what I found in my lived experience. I love friends of mine who are at the extreme right end of the spectrum and I love some friends and can name them by name at the left end of the spectrum but here's what I've noticed about people like us. The closer you get to the extremes, the easier it is to exclude. Is this thing on? Now my most right wing friends, and I'm talking about like off the map right, it's easy to know who they exclude because they'll tell you. Their life is black and white and in and out and if you're not like me, well then you're not part of this table. I can see that, they make it very clear in the bumper stickers that are on their cars and in the ways they post things on the internet. But do you know something else I've learned? People I love on the far left end of the spectrum, the ones who actually claim to be the most inclusive are the most inclusive until you don't define inclusivity the way they do, then guess what you are? Excluded. It is possible to be so far to the right flank and the left flank that it becomes easy to exclude. What's really the call is to question who am I making room for at the table? Yeah, yeah. So, the further right you go, you're something of a fundamentalist, right? The further left, a liberal radical. But both are kinds of fundamentalism itself. Both. The further right and the further left, and here's what I mean. We live in a round world, and the further right you go, and the further left you go, you eventually become the same thing. That's why I love, and you know what's also true? At the right flank and at the left flank of extremes, there is also inherent a kind of arrogance of believing that we are they who get to choose who's at the table. That's why I love what Nadia Boltz Weber said. This is what she said. She goes, maybe the opposite of religious fundamentalism isn't strident atheism or liberalism. Maybe the opposite of fundamentalism is humility. Because there can be a fundamentalism on the right and a fundamentalism on the left and both are infused with an arrogance that needs some humility. And do you know the best example that I see? Is this passage where Jesus, the humble, reclines with someone least likely to be spending time with Jesus. You know what it occurs to me? We're one sentence in, one verse in to this passage and already he has inspired me. Because do you know that the only thing unwelcome at the table of the Lord is unwelcomeness itself. The only thing excluded is exclusion itself. 
because you can't be transformed if you walk away from the table. Only they who remain around the table can be transformed because it's at the table of great diversity that Jesus finds himself reclined and willing to transform. But heads up, with great inclusion comes great intrusion. Let's see how it played out for him. In verse 37, and a woman in the city who was a sinner, having learned that he was eating at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster jar of ointment. She stood behind him at his feet, weeping, and began to bathe his feet with her tears and dry them with her hair, kissing his feet and anointing them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him in saw it, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what kind of woman this is who was touching him, that she is a sinner. Jesus spoke up and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. Teacher, he said, he replied, speak. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, that's about 500 days worth of wages, and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debts for both of them. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the greater debt. And Jesus said to him, hmm. You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has bathed my feet with her tears and dried them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which were many, have been forgiven. Hence, she has shown great love. But the one to whom little is forgiven loves little. There is so much transformation happening in this text, and it's not just the woman. I mean, her transformation is obvious in the demonstrative way in which she is reacting to how Jesus has changed her life, but to appreciate how much transition or how much uh, transformation is happening in this text, we have to do a little bit of digging. Do you know, there is some disagreement among scholars about this story. Some say that this story is really two stories in the New Testament. And in some places, it's told one way, and in other places, it's another. For example, in Matthew, Mark, and John, this event takes place at Bethany. And, and the woman is named Mary, the sister of Lazarus, the sister of Martha. And, and in that place, in those versions of the story, the host who welcomes Jesus in at the table is a man named Simon the leper. Now hang on to that, because we're in Luke today, and in Luke, this event doesn't take place at Bethany, 
And, and it's not necessarily Mary who is the woman. It may be Mary, the sister of Martha. It may be Mary Magdalene, but it may be neither of them. In fact, the text itself only says that she's a woman from the city. In another translation, it's a woman of the city. And you and I both know exactly what that means. We'll keep it PG here to say that she was a woman of the city, a woman of the night. And, and the host where we read here in Luke is not Simon the leper, but it's Simon given another name, Simon the Pharisee. So it is possible, plausible, that there are two stories here that are being told. But what is likely, and many scholars agree and I tend to agree with them that this is one story told differently in each of the gospels in order to accomplish the particular theological motive of that gospel. Mark says some things the way that Matthew doesn't say them and Luke says some things in the way that John doesn't say them. And if that's the case, and I believe it is, that means that here in Luke, Simon, who is the Pharisee, is Simon the leper. Simon the leper is Simon the Pharisee. Einhorn is Finkel. Finkel is Einhorn. Okay, four of you got that joke. Well, let's just get back to the scholars who say that Simon, who is the Pharisee, may have been a Pharisee who along the way of his journey contracted that awful disease of leprosy, which means if it is true, this Pharisee now with leprosy some years ago knows what it's like to receive a life sentence of shame and social shunning. He knows what it's like to be an outcast, to be thought of as unclean, to be unwelcome at any table, to be unfit to even come to worship. He knew what it was all about. And then, as tradition tells us, he met Jesus. And Jesus healed him of his leprosy. And yet, the name remained for the rest of his life as a kind of badge of honor, a kind of living testimony. I'm Simon, the leper. See me now? I met a man. Yeah, yeah. And if that's true, can you understand the, comp oh, the consequences would be amazing. That means that in Luke, the Pharisee Simon <laughs> knows what it's like to weep tears of sorrow, which makes sense why Jesus then Pay attention to the anatomy of the text, to the physicality of the text, to the stage blocking of the drama that Luke is telling us about. This woman is at his feet behind him, washing his feet with her tears and drying them with her hair, and he's talking to Simon. His eyes are locked at Simon when he tells a story, wait for it, of two people whose lives were a mess and he tells the parable, as she's weeping at his feet, he says, Simon, I'm gonna tell you a story about two people, Simon. And one of them owed a whole lot more and was in a lot more trouble, 500 denarii, and the other, less. 
but both were restored, so who would show greater gratitude and love? And Simon said, probably the one who was forgiven most, and Jesus, I imagine, says, yes. And then something interesting happens in the, to- in the story. Luke says that he turns toward the woman. Literally, that's what I read a moment ago. He's talking to Simon. He turns to the woman and says to Simon, do you see this woman? Simon, do do you see these, these, do you see anything familiar about the tears she is shedding, Simon? See, there's something curious about the tears we shed. Some time ago, RG, talked to R.G. and asked his permission to share this a little bit today. Some time ago, a wonderful Johns Creek Baptist saint went on to be with the Lord. And before Sue passed, R.G. told of this moment they shared there at her deathbed where not many words were being spoken, but total clarity in which there was a moment that... Sue produced one single tear. He reached up and grabbed the tear and after she had died, R.G., you, you asked me a question. What is in a tear? Is it sadness? Is it love? Is it years and years of laughter and pain? Is it regret? Is it hope? Yeah. RG, I think about Sue when I read this passage because here's this woman pouring out a lifetime of tears upon the feet of of Jesus. And, and, And I imagine Jesus saying to Simon, do you see anything familiar about what's in these tears? Because Simon the leper, something has gotten in your eye. Do you see this woman? Because something is blinding you to remember what it was to taste the tears that stained your own pillow for years. You know, sometimes we could stand to be reminded of the tears we used to shed. Sometimes we could stand to be reminded of the tears we used to shed because when we remember the tears we used to shed, then we recall what great grace it took to dry them up in the first place. When we remember a time in our lives where our language was tears, when we remember seasons when the world was just about to crush us. When we remember seasons in which we found ourselves slobbering and weeping at the feet of Jesus, it's then that we recall how how much it took for, for God to bring us back from where we were. And when we fail to remember our own tears of brokenness and shame, and isolation, when we look at another whose life is a mess and forget our lives were so messy, it took some cleaning up too. 
when that happens, that we can become prone to look upon the lives of others and become so judgy and so condemning and so self-righteous and so unwelcoming that we are no better than a Pharisee who has forgotten I used to be a leper. But when we do, we set a table wide enough for all the unfinished people of the world and all the imperfect children of God to gather around the table and receive the same kind of grace that we received. Isn't it interesting how we will sometimes look at the mess of somebody else's life and forget what it took to clean up our own mess? Isn't it interesting that we will sometimes look at another person in their worst moment and assume that that worst moment symbolizes their whole story when it doesn't? And we look at ourselves and we see ourselves at our best moment. We assume that our best moment symbolizes our whole story and it doesn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is why we set the table wide And we welcome the unfinished and we welcome the imperfect because that is where Jesus is, reclining and making it safe to actually be transformed. Well, the story continues with these words. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven, but those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? But he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Now, go in peace. Do you know what I love? Just one more thing. Just just one more thing. Do you know what I love about this story? Is some of the ambiguity in it. I mean, is is it Simon the leper or Simon the Pharisee? Is it Mary, the mother of Martha? Is it Mary Magdalene? Is it some other woman? Is it, is it in Bethany or is it not? Do you know what I love about the ambiguity of Luke's version of the story? Is that the gospel writers do that all the time. Sometimes they leave main characters nameless and sometimes they leave questions unanswered so that When you and I gather around this sacred book and we read about a moment like this, we don't spend our energies asking, well, is it it Simon the leper? Is it Simon the the Pharisee? Is it Mary of Magdalene? Who is it? Instead, we spend our energies asking, is it me? Is it me? And I don't know what you're hearing today, but I ask you, to ask yourself, where do you see yourself in this story? Are you like Simon, the Pharisee, who who needs to be reminded of the tears you used to shed so that you can make space for somebody that you struggle to let at your table? Are you someone authentically struggling to open your heart up to a person a people, a group of persons? Or are you merry? Do you find yourself here today with no words to speak because the depth of your pain and the depth of your gratitude and the richness of your tears can only be expressed by simply falling at his feet?